Please turn with me in the written word of God to the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. We're going to begin our reading in verse 13 and go through the end of the chapter. Romans 10, beginning in verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the preaching of the word will come not only in word, but also in power. That your Holy Spirit would anoint not only my lips, but the ears and the hearts of every hearer here. The Father, those who are outside of Jesus Christ, press upon them the danger that their souls are in if they do not repent and place their faith in Christ. Would you grant this day that they would turn from their sins, forsake their own righteousness, and depend entirely upon Christ by faith to save them? We pray for us who are in Christ. Lord, comfort us, equip us, challenge us, encourage us, convict us as we need it, so that we walked away having profited from having the word preached to us. Make us more like Jesus and less like ourselves for your glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As evangelical Baptists, our historical taproots go back to the 17th century, the early decades of the 17th century, which was the century immediately following the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. And when the Baptists began to emerge in those early days in Great Britain, there were two different groups of Baptists almost from the very beginning. The first group was emerged in 1611, around that time, and they were known as the General Baptists. They believed in a general atonement. They were Arminian. They believed in the free will of man. They tended to deny the doctrine of original sin. And they denied that God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. In other words, what we so often see among Baptists today, the same truth or the same uh, falsehood was uh, taught at that time. As they, they, were, they tended to not believe in creedal subscription or confessional subscription, they, were, they avoided those kind of things. And so it shouldn't surprise us that in the generations following, the general Baptists generally became liberal. They became theological liberals. Many of them became Unitarians. 
who denied the triune nature of God and its corollary doctrine, the deity of Jesus Christ. And that really shouldn't surprise us. But there was another group, the polar opposite group of Baptists, who rose up around the same time. In the year 1633 is when we can trace the first origin of them. These were not general Baptists. They were known as particular Baptists because of their belief in the particular redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ upon the cross. They were Calvinists who sprang up from the rich soil of English Puritanism, but they departed with their Puritan brethren on the subject of baptism. Hence, they were called Baptists. And unlike the general Baptists, they, of course, believed in creedal and confessional subscription, and they wrote two of their own confessions. 1644, they published a confession of faith. 1677, they published a second confession, which they publicly signed 12 years later in the year 1689. You may have heard of that one uh, somewhere before. But as you can imagine, the uh, particular Baptists were the ones who remained theologically conservative because they had documents that helped them stay within the boundaries of orthodoxy. But here's the problem. Right opinions by themselves cannot guarantee that you're going to be holy. We can have all the right doctrine and all the right opinions and yet become very dead and very dead orthodox. The early generations of particular Baptists were godly men, pious men, and many generations after them were as well. But the unfortunate thing is, and this is, a, this is a, always a problem any, in any generation where it happens, whenever you see men recovering the doctrines of free and sovereign grace, there is a tendency for us to swing too far in the pendulum and become hyper-Calvinists. And the subsequent generations to the uh, particular Baptists, many of them did become hyper-Calvinists. And you may ask yourself, what is a hyper-Calvinist? It's important to understand that. When the Arminian looks at his Bible, he sees in his Bible these universal calls being made to every man, every sinner without distinction, to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. He sees in his Bible clearly that the Bible puts the responsibility to repent and believe squarely upon the shoulders of the sinner. And that we are to preach the gospel without discrimination to every man, woman, boy, or child that we encounter. And so far as they've gone there, we would say amen, would we not? That that is exactly what the Bible teaches. But then the Armenian takes that farther and says that since men have the responsibility to repent and believe, they also have the natural ability to do so. And so they argue that man has a free will, that really, ultimately, he's sovereign over his own eternal destiny, and God isn't sovereign over him at all. That's really where they go with it. Well, a hyper-Calvinist looks at things from the exact opposite direction. When the hyper-Calvinist looks into his Bible, he sees that God is absolutely sovereign over who will be saved and who will not. That it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And that man has no natural ability to repent and believe that he can't come to Christ unless it's granted to him by God the Father. And once again, wouldn't we say amen? That that is exactly what we believe and teach. But he takes his conclusions in the exact opposite direction of the Arminian. Since the man has no natural ability to repent and believe, 
It's not his God-given duty to repent and believe unless it can prove that he is one of God's elect. And therefore, we shouldn't preach the gospel without discrimination unless there are some sort of outward evidences or signs that the person we are speaking to is one of God's elect. And they went further than this. They said a sinner doesn't have a right or a warrant to come to Christ for salvation unless they are first given the assurance that they're one of God's elect. And then once you're assured that you're one of God's elect, which how do you even figure that out? Then you come to Jesus and you can be saved. That is what the hyper-Calvinists taught. And this reigned in the early 18th century. This was dominating the Baptist world. Someone said it this way, in a way that's very helpful. Arminianism is all door and no house. And hyper-Calvinism is all house and no door. And yet, the gospel, as given to us in Scripture, is a glorious house with a door. And on that door, over it is a banner, whosoever will may come. We, we, without discrimination, cry out to sinners to come to faith in Christ. And if you're here and you're outside of Jesus, let me go ahead and say it. I'm going to say it again at the end. You do not have to know if you're elect or not in order to come to Jesus. You know what you got to know? you got to know that you're a sinner. That you're a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. And not just a great Savior, the only Savior of sinners. And you have to repent of your sins and put your faith in Him. And you can come simply by faith in His promise that He receives sinners to Himself. And you will be saved. Now, if you get nothing else that I say all day, just get that. Because that's important for your soul and your eternal destiny. You don't have to know if you're elect. You just got to know that Jesus receives sinners. That's the most glorious promise in all of Scripture, that Jesus receives sinners to himself. But as you can imagine, if you lived under in a church or you were a member of a church that was hyper-Calvinistic, you wouldn't hear people calling you, your pastors calling you to faith in Jesus. Almost never would you hear anything, any calls to the unconverted to come to Christ. And there was a man named Andrew Fuller who grew up in such a church. And he wrestled in his soul because he didn't believe he had a warrant to come to Jesus, and yet he longed to be saved. And so he grew up in a hyper-Calvinistic church, but he began to read the writings of a Puritan who had lived over a hundred years before, whose name was John Bunyan. And like himself, Bunyan was a convinced Baptist, but also a convinced Calvinist. And yet what he discovered was that in Bunyan's writings, he indiscriminately called sinners to put their faith in Jesus Christ. He said, here's a man who's a convinced Calvinist, and yet this man is calling us to come to faith in Christ. And he found liberty for his own soul in that. And as he began to wrestle with this and seeing this problem in his denomination, he wrote a book published in 1785 called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And it was a firestorm, it caused a firestorm of controversy, but it also gained many adherents. And as one man has said, it broke the back of hyper-Calvinism among the particular Baptist. Now, that was the year 1785. Seven years later, in 1792, in October 2nd, which was a Tuesday night, in, the, in, a, in, a widow, in, in the back of a, a widow's parlor, there was a little 10 by 10 uh, room. There were all these ministers crammed in together, one of them being Andrew Fuller. And they formed the particular Baptist Missionary Society for the Conversion of the Heathen. Among the other men in that room 
was a man named William Carey and another by the name of Samuel Pierce. And that with the formation of that society, the very next January, their first two missionaries were chosen. The first one was John Thomas, and the second one was William Carey himself. The mission's endeavor began from these brothers. But I want you to understand something. William Carey is now called the father of modern missions, right? What you need to know about William Carey was he was a fully convinced Calvinist. He believed in the doctrines of free and sovereign grace. Listen to what the, uh, to, to these words, opening words from the Serampore Compact, which was published in 1805. Serampore, India was where uh, William Carey and his missionary team were stationed. They wrote the Serampore Compact basically as the constitution for their mission. It was read publicly three times a year to remind them, let's keep the main thing the main thing. But listen to their opening words. The Redeemer, in planting us in this heathen nation, rather than in any other, has imposed upon us the cultivation of peculiar qualifications. We are firmly persuaded that Paul might plant and Apollos water in vain in any part of the world did not God give the increase. We are sure that only those who are ordained to eternal life will believe, and that God alone can add to the church such as shall be saved. You hear this? These are missionaries talking this way. Nevertheless, we cannot but observe with admiration that Paul, the great champion for the glorious doctrine of free and sovereign grace, was the most conspicuous for his personal zeal in the work of persuading men to be reconciled to God. In this respect, he is a noble example for our imitation. Our Lord intimated to those of his apostles who were fishermen that he would make them fishermen, fishers of men, intimating that in all weathers and amidst every disappointment, they were to aim at drawing men to the shores of eternal life. Solomon says, He that winneth souls is wise, implying no doubt that the work of gaining over men to the side of God was to be done by winning methods and that it required the greatest wisdom to do it with success. Upon these points... We think it right to fix our serious and abiding attention. Do you hear what they're saying? God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. Therefore, let's evangelize with zeal. That's what they're saying. There's no contradiction between the two. Do our minds understand how the two work? No. But what we understand is God tells us both things are true that sinners are responsible to repent and believe the gospel, that we must tell them about Jesus and invite them to Christ, invite them to be reconciled to God, and God's sovereign behind all of it, over who will be saved and who will not. Now, I'm about to say something really profound. I don't say much profound that often, but I'm about to say something really profound. You ready? Here it is. Romans chapter 10 comes right after Romans chapter 8 and 9. That's very profound. Romans 8 and 9 have some of the, most, the clearest, most explicit teaching about the sovereign grace of God that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And there's other places too. Ephesians 1, for example, comes to mind. But it, here, Paul lays it out systematically. The reality is, I don't see how any Arminian can preach phrase by phrase, verse by verse, through Romans 8 and 9 and come away still being an Arminian. Not if he's honest. It's so clear that you just have to be dishonest with the text to deny it. And yet, when we come to the text that I've just read to you, what have we been seeing throughout this entire uh, this discourse of Paul? 
My heart's desire is for Israel that they may be saved. I would sell my soul for their salvation. I pray continually for them to be saved. And now he says, how will they hear unless they're sent? How will people come to Christ if people don't tell them about Jesus? In other words, he comes away in the context of talking about the sovereign grace of God to talk about evangelism and world missions and the responsibility of sinners to repent and believe. So I want to preach our text to you under two headings. First, in verses 13 to 17, we see the necessity of evangelism and missions. Then verses 18 to 21, we see the necessity of repentance and faith. So, first of all, the necessity of evangelism and missions. Look at verse 13 again. He's quoting from the book of Joel, and Paul says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's describing the nature of saving faith. And that faith believes that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And then it acts upon that belief. That is, it's not just, okay, yes, Jesus is risen from the dead, like Washington crossed the Potomac. Knowing that Washington crossed the Potomac doesn't change your life, does it? But when you believe truly that God has raised Jesus from the dead, then you actively apply to Him to have mercy upon your soul. You confess with your lips, Jesus Christ is Lord, and then you call upon Him, you cry out to Him for mercy upon your soul. And if you're here and you're lost, let me tell you, cry out to God for mercy. Remember the publican in Jesus' parable? He came and he knew he was a sinner. He knew there was nothing in him to commend him to God. He was so convinced of it, he couldn't even look up to heaven. He looked downward with his gaze. He beat his breast. And what did he say? God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And what's the scripture say? He went away justified. As opposed to the Pharisee who thanked God that he was better than other men and enumerated all his righteousness and all his righteous works. And he went away the same way he had come in, self-righteous and full of himself, and not justified and not forgiven. But the man who knew he had nothing to commend him to God simply pleaded God's mercy, and he obtained the mercy he cried out for. Even so, here Paul is saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that is, to cry out to him for mercy, will know the Lord, will be saved. Well, then in verses 14... And 15, Paul gives us another golden chain. He's already given us one in Romans chapter 8. It's called the golden chain of redemption, which every good Calvinist knows, right? There are five links in that chain, and they go from cause to effect. What are they? For whom God foreknew, that's the first link, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Those he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. We all know the the, the five links in the golden chain of redemption, right? Well, he gives us another golden chain right here. But this time it's the golden chain of world missions. And it has five links in the chain as well. But instead of going in, in sequential order, that is from cause to effect, Paul goes in reverse order. He goes from effect to cause. He's just said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that true? Yes, because the word of God says it. Verse 14. How then shall they call? Call is the, well, it's actually the fifth link in the chain. 
How shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? Right? If they don't have faith in Christ, they can't call out to Christ. How can they believe in someone of whom they have never heard? And how should they hear if there's not a preacher? And how can there be a preacher if someone is not sent? So going in sequential order, we have to send someone out. A preacher who preaches Christ to the people. They hear about Christ. They believe on Christ. And they call out for mercy to Christ. But without a preacher, they can never, ever be saved. Now, this is the golden chain of world missions, and it's crucial. Those of you who took our course uh, last year on the fulfilling the Great Commission heard about the golden chain of world missions a lot. Uh, and, and that was on purpose, right? But here's the thing we need to understand. Really, in so many ways, Romans 10 is a bookend to Romans chapter 1. Paul there says, God has revealed himself to every man upon the face of the earth in the book of nature. His creation tells them there's a creator, even tells them something of what he's like, tells them something about his attributes. And it is enough to render them without excuse. It shows them their sin. It shows them their creator. And what is the response of the the natural world to this revelation of God? Do they immediately run and say, hey, let's go worship this God and thank this God and serve this God? No, they run in the complete opposite direction. They make gods out of creatures and of of sticks and stones and birds and four-footed animals and all those kind of things. In other words, they refuse to bow down to the Creator revealed in creation. But here's the thing. What Paul says is God's revelation of Himself simply in creation is sufficient to condemn them to hell. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you because this is important. It is certainly true that those who hear the gospel, have the gospel preached to them, and reject it, when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where will they go? They'll be sent to an eternity in hell. But what about people who never heard the gospel, never heard that that God has an only begotten Son named Jesus, never had the chance to receive the gospel or reject it because they never heard it? What's going to happen to them when they die? they too will go to hell. Because God's light in creation is sufficient to condemn them. Because God doesn't just send people to hell for rejecting His gospel, He sends them to hell because they've sinned against the Creator. That is why missions is necessary. That's why we need to pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into His harvest field, because if they don't hear about Jesus, they're going to die and go to hell. Period. Okay? But that's what Paul's coming back to here. While creation is sufficient to condemn sinners, it's not sufficient to save them. Because they cannot know who Jesus is apart from the preaching of the Word of God. But what the light of creation cannot do, the light of God's written Word can. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? He said to him, 2 Timothy 3.15, From childhood, from the time you were a little child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. You know how he knew the Holy Scriptures? Because his mother and his grandmother taught it to him. His his father was a lost man. But his mother and grandmother taught him the Scriptures from the time he was little. So mothers, what you're doing matters. It's important. It says, From childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures, 
which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. They're able to produce faith in you because the written word reveals the living word, Jesus Christ, and shows you who he is and what he did for sinners and that he's risen and that therefore people can be saved. So people must have the gospel preached to them in in order that they might believe on Christ and be saved. Look at verse 15. How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul is here quoting from Isaiah chapter 52. And in its original context, what this was talking about was this. You remember, there was no internet. There was no computer. There was no telephone uh, in order for you to receive news. And the idea here was when God's people of Israel were taken into captivity and they're under bondage in a Gentile nation, the day would come when God would set them free. And the way they would know that they're about to be set free is he would send messengers running across the hills who would come to them to declare to them the news, you're about to be set free from your captivity. Now, if you have been in bondage for decades and suddenly you're told you're about to be liberated and you're about to be a free people and you're going to be restored to the promised land, what would you think about the messenger who brought you that news? His feet are all dirty and muddy because he's been running to come tell you, but you would fall down on your face and kiss his feet because his feet are beautiful because he brought the best of news to you. Your bondage is over. You're about to be liberated. Even so, as the gospel is proclaimed, it proclaims liberty to people who are enslaved to sin. It tells them your your enslavement to the condemnation of the law is over through faith in Jesus. And so what do you do with a messenger? You love the messenger who brings that good news to you. His feet are beautiful to you because of the message he has brought. The message didn't originate with him. He's just the courier. He's just the messenger boy. But you love him because he's conveying the message of the king. You're about to be set free. You ever notice in the the, uh, hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be? There's a, one of the verses says this, let my lips be filled with messages from thee. And another one says, take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. In other words, help me to carry the gospel so that my feet will be beautiful to you and to those who hear the good news that I have to proclaim to them. Well, here's the question. What about when the gospel is preached? Does that mean that everybody who hears it comes to know Christ? Of course not. Look at verse 16. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Remember that as you share the gospel, not everyone's going to receive it. Some are going to reject it. Those who receive it, you're going to be the savior of life to them. But those who reject it, you're going to be the savior of death. They're going to hate what you're saying. Because they hate the God you're telling them to be reconciled to, and they hate the conditions that you're setting forth. You must forsake your sins. Well, sinners love their sins. They don't want to forsake their sins and be reconciled to God. And furthermore, people are self-righteous by nature. And you tell them your your righteousness is as filthy rags, that doesn't come across real well. And to say that you must be dressed in the righteousness of another, sinners recoil at that very notion because of their pride and their self-righteousness. But nonetheless, there are others who will receive that truth. And for them, it will be the fragrance of life. 
And notice what he goes on in verse 17 to say, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. All throughout Scripture, repentance and faith are described as gifts of grace given to God's elect by God Himself. In other words, you can't repent and believe unless God grants it to you. But how, what is the vehicle through which God grants that faith and that repentance? It's through the preaching of the Holy Word. That is, it's not the effectual ability of the preacher. We have no ability. I have no ability to save you. I have no ability to convert you. As a matter of fact, you have no ability to regenerate your own heart. But God's Holy Spirit has that power. And as the Word is proclaimed, the Father sends His Spirit to effectually call those who are His elect to Jesus Christ. He grants faith through the preaching of the Word, whether that's a preaching behind a pulpit in a church, or whether that's the proclamation of the gospel that you give in conversation with your neighbor or with your children. It is through this, God uses means. Here's the point you're supposed to get. God has ordained the ends, that is the salvation of the elect, but He's also ordained the means that accomplish that end, which is the preaching of the gospel. Do you see how central preaching is to the plan of God? Uh, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are sanctifying ordinances, but they are not converting ordinances. The preaching of the gospel, the preaching of God's word, is both a converting and a sanctifying ordinance in the hand of God. So therefore, we must preach the word. And if people are to be preached, they've got to be trained to preach, and they've got to be sent to preach, right? So the first thing we've seen is the necessity of evangelism and missions. Without the spreading of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, people simply cannot be saved. That's what Paul is telling us. That leads us then to our second heading, which is the necessity of repentance and faith. We've already made the point that not everyone who hears the gospel preached responds positively to that gospel. And so Paul goes there, verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, the gospel is being preached in every place on every continent this very day. Many people have heard and yet stubbornly have refused. Are you ever amazed when you read the book of Acts at how quickly the gospel spread? Jesus died, was buried, raised again, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father in 30 A.D. Do you realize that the book of Acts, by the time we come to the end of it, it's only about 65 A.D., it's like 35 years later when it comes to an end? And what do we find when you look at the book of Acts? Beginning in Jerusalem, the gospel spreads. It spreads to the surrounding region of Judea. It goes to Samaria. It gets preached in Asia, modern-day Turkey. It gets preached in northern Africa through Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It was preached, it was making converts all throughout Europe. The Macedonian call was the first time the gospel penetrated into Europe. And we find Paul at the end of Romans saying, I'm making plans to go to Spain. What you need to understand significant about that is in those days, people didn't know about the existence of North America and South America and all that. That that was unknown until Christopher Columbus. But nonetheless, Spain was the westernmost frontier at that time of the known visible world. And here in 35 years, all these continents have heard the gospel. That's amazing. That is an extraordinary thing. Now, the the work wasn't done, obviously. The work's still going on. But nonetheless, it was off to an impressive start, wasn't it? 
because the gospel was spreading to all those places. And yet, while many thousands of people were being converted to Christ, baptized, and formed into churches, many more thousands were rejecting the gospel they heard. Everywhere Paul went, there was revival and there was riots, usually together. And sometimes there's just riots. Sometimes people didn't receive anything he said at all. But the point being, just because the gospel's preached doesn't mean necessarily that people respond well to it. Notice in verse 19, But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Interesting enough, the vast majority of the Jews did not receive the news about their Messiah. Now, there were some who did, thankfully, but the majority of people being added to Christ were the Gentiles, not the Jews. And so Paul says, you shouldn't be surprised by that, because the Old Testament over and over again told us that the Gentiles were going to be grafted in. And we're seeing it fulfilled right before our very eyes. But then he goes on to say this, verse 20. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's clearly a description of sovereign grace, isn't it? People who didn't seek me, God himself sought them and saved them, predominantly Gentiles. But then look at verse 21. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Do you hear what he's saying? Remember the context here. Paul's talking about sovereign grace. And yet in the midst of talking about sovereign grace, he's rebuking those who heard the gospel and did not submit themselves to it. They had a responsibility to obey the gospel by repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus. And the only person they could blame for their failure to do so was themselves. Because God Himself had sent the invitation with great clarity. Through His prophets, then through His Son, then through His apostles, then through the churches they planted, and yet they refused to listen. Election and the sovereign grace of God did not render them an excuse for their failure to obey the gospel. If you get nothing else I say this morning, hear this. God commands every last one of you in this room to repent of your sins, to forsake your own righteousness, and to put your entire faith in Christ alone for salvation. It is not His request. It's His commandment. It's your duty. It's something your Creator commands you to do. And God, though He is sovereign over granting repentance and faith, please understand this, He doesn't repent and believe for you. It's you who must repent for yourself. It's you who must believe for yourself. It's you who must cry out to God to have mercy upon your soul. It's you who must believe in your heart. God has raised him from the dead. It's you who must confess with the lips, Jesus Christ is Lord. That responsibility is placed squarely upon your shoulders by God himself. But look at this text. It is God himself who invites you. Invites you to be reconciled to Him through His Son. I have two applications to make from our text. First, and most importantly, for those of you who are outside of Christ, particularly our children, listen to me, please. The sovereign grace of God 
is no excuse for your failure to repent and believe the gospel. It's your fault. It's your sinful heart that keeps you from repenting and believing in Christ. I have stretched out my hands all day long, God says, to a stubborn and disobedient and contrary people. Does a Lord's Day go by where Matt or Jesse or myself or someone else does not call you to come to faith in Christ? But understand something. We truly desire your salvation. But understand something. We're just the messenger boys. That's all we are. We're just delivering the message of somebody else Because the invitation doesn't come from us. It comes from God Himself. Paul expresses it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. As though God Himself were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. God Himself cries out to you and invites you, have peace with me. Have forgiveness with me. Have my righteousness. I desire your salvation. I do. But you know something? My desire is dung. It's nothing compared to the desire of God himself. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God says. Therefore, turn and repent. It is his kindness that leads you to repentance. It's his goodness, his love that leads you to repentance. Jesus is able to save sinners. Whoever you are, I don't care if you're young. I don't care if you're old. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care whether you're rich or poor. I don't care if you're purple or pink polka dots. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you think you're elect. It doesn't matter if you don't think you're elect. It doesn't matter how wicked your past is. Jesus Christ is able to save you. That in itself doesn't help you. Because if somebody is able to help me, but he's not willing to help me, that's a problem. But Jesus is not only able to save you, He's just as willing as He is able to save you. Remember the old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched? There's a version different than the one we sing, but it says this, He is able, He is able, He is willing. Doubt no more. Not only that, God desires to save sinners. You've heard me say it a hundred times. I hope to keep saying it till the day I die. Jesus loves to save sinners more than sinners love to be saved. It is his glory that he can be saved. It fills fills heaven with joy every time a sinner repents. Whoever you are, however wicked your past is, maybe you think to yourself, I'm so bad, so sinful, Pastor, you have no idea how sinful I am. Well, the reality is you don't know how sinful I am either. But I don't have to know how sinful you are because here's the thing. Your sin isn't too great for His grace. His grace is greater than all your sin. He is able to save you. He's willing to save you. Repent and put your faith in Jesus. Do you really want to cling to your sin until it sinks you to the lowest hell? Do you want to hold on to your pride and your righteousness and say, well, I'm good enough to merit my way into heaven? No, you are not. Stop it. Repent of it. And rest entirely upon Him. You'll never regret that you did. You'll only regret it if you don't. Salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, that is what's offered to you by God Himself.
but it's only found in his son and you come to him on his terms or you don't come at all. So come to him and believe on Christ. Hear nothing else I say. Get that, please. Second application. Those who send out missionaries are as important to the work of missions as those who are sent. The golden chain of missions begins with what? Somebody going? What's the very first link? Sending. Sending. I grew up, or didn't grow up, I went to a Bible college for my undergraduate degree that was well reputed for its zeal for missions. But while I was there, I would hear it say repeatedly, not by our professors, but by overzealous students, they would say things in chapel like this. If you can't be a goer, at least you can be a sender. What is the implication of those words? The implication that somehow you're not quite as spiritual if you're the sender. The goer is more spiritual than you are. What a bunch of hogwash. That is simply not true. The senders are essential to the mission field because it's like this. 2015, a man named Alan Beardmore came here to our church, and he talked about being, he was about to be sent out to Australia by the, his sending church in Louisiana, and I'll never forget what he said, and Jesse has reminded me of this many, many times. He said, you know, when NASA sent men to the moon, they didn't launch their rockets from a cardboard box. If you know anything about the history of space travel, they spent millions of dollars upon the gantry system and the launching pad that sent those rockets and propelled them to the moon. Without that, they couldn't have gone. Even so, the local church has to be a strong launching pad. And if it's not, we're going to be in trouble. Because the reality is, when we send out missionaries onto the mission field, they're going to reproduce us. The question is, should we be reproduced? Jesus spoke of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you traverse land and sea to make one proselyte. And once he's proselytized, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. He says, you're multiplying yourself, and that's not a good thing, right? So we have to be developed by God and by his mercies into a strong launching pad for missionaries. It's vital for the mission itself. Um, it was when uh, William Carey was going off the mission field. These Baptists had never done this before. They were new to missions and they were having to figure it all out. And they realized, Andrew Fuller would say, it was like lowering a man into a mine that had been unexplored. Okay, volunteers, who wants to go down to the creepy unexplored mine? And finally, William Carey said, before he was sent, he said, I will go down but you must hold the ropes for me while I go down. And you must promise that you never let go of the rope. We have to be rope holders, and that means you got to know some missiology, and you got to know some Bible, and we got to be a church that's strong in grace, strong in piety, strong in purity. God has to make us into that in order to be a strong, sending church. I was, I'm reading a book right now by a man named Ebenezer Porter, Ebenezer Porter was the president of uh, Andover Seminary, which produced the likes of William uh, uh, Andoniram Judson and Charles Colcock Jones and all that. But he lived through the Second Great Awakening in the early part of the 19th century, saw it with his own eyes. And so decades later, some pastors said, would you write some letters documenting what you saw? And so he wrote a little, there's a little book out by Banner Truth called uh, Letters on Revival. I've been reading it. It's been blessing, them, blessing my socks off. 
But he said this, quote, The strength of a church consists not in the number, but in the character of those who belong to it. Not the number, but the character. He's not just the character of your pastors, your officers, the character of the members. That's the strength of the church, not the number, but the character. And so we need to be a church that's strong in grace, pursuing holiness, full of prayer, devoted to piety. Certainly, uh, A.W. Tozer in 1963, or 1961 published his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is about God's attributes. And he says, the church has forgotten who God is, what he says in the very beginning. And he says this, we are decreasing in the quality of our religion, but outwardly we're making great gains in our quantity. More missionary activity, more churches being planted than ever before. He says, but since it's the quality of our religion rather than the quantity that really matters, maybe our supposed gains are just our losses spread over a wider field. We need to be a church strong in grace. Secondly, under this heading, if we would be a mission-sending church, then we must labor in evangelism in our own Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Something we all need to grow in, I need to grow in, is sharing the gospel right where we are. Many of you probably know the name of John Payton, uh, who was the famous missionary from Scotland to the New Hebrides Islands. He was sent to reach people who were cannibals. Uh, Lots of fun. Um, But there were people who objected to him being sent out. They said, there's so many people in Scotland who don't know the Lord, who need to be evangelized. And he said, you know, their argument had some weight to it. There was some force to it, except when I considered the people who were arguing this way weren't doing anything to reach the lost themselves, the weight of their argument lost its force. And so I went to the New Hebrides to preach the gospel to them. Even so, it starts here. You know, it's a lot easier to have compassion for the heathen that live 5,000 miles away than it is for the heathen that live next door to you. And so it has to start here. Third thing under this second application, and I'll be done. How do you hold the ropes for those who are on the mission field? I'm going to suggest three ways very quickly. I actually taught on this on October 1st. I gave seven ways. I'm just going to give you three. Okay. Number one, pray for them. Pray often. Pray daily. Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest field because they're going to die and go to hell if, you don't, if someone doesn't give them the gospel. We're praying regularly. Lord, raise up people from our midst that we can someday send out. When he answers that prayer, we're going to be sobbing uncontrollably because we're going to lose people that we love. And we'll have to send out people that we don't want to send away. So are you prepared for that? But we need to pray that way. Lord, the harvest, send out labors into your harvest field. Pray for those who are already on the harvest field. Brothers and sisters, I shouldn't be throwing away any of our Harvest Hill prayer guys at the end of the month. If we're a missions-minded church, you should be snatching those things up like kids in a candy store and using them diligently to pray. If you were on the mission field, how would you want somebody to pray for you? God bless, what's his name in Outer Shalbovia out there? Or would you want someone to very specifically, tangibly pray for you in specific ways while you're facing the warfare of trying to reach an unreached people group? Pray for our people diligently. Second, by giving sacrificially of your finances as you're able to do. I'm not putting a guilt trip on any of you. But if you are able to give a little bit above and beyond your normal giving to the church, to designate, 
to people who are overseas, who are laboring in the ministry but are underfunded, then do so. Now, if you don't have the ability, don't feel guilty. Here's the thing. Pray, right? Because you can pray, even if you can't give finances. But if you can give some, do so. I can ask for money for other people all day long. That's a, that, 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 I don't have a problem doing that. But we look at Sam Gunnup and we look to Teyuk and how far underfunded they are. And yet what a worthy endeavor they're, they're trying to do, establishing churches in South Korea. Third and finally, in holding the ropes, encourage them. Send them notes. Write emails. We live in a day where we have the ability to encourage our brothers to let them know, hey, I'm praying for you. And this is what I prayed for you today. I want you to know, I, I think about you often. I've had people write back to me and say, thank you for letting me know that you're praying for me. Because sometimes in our weaker moments, we wonder if anybody cares at all. Because they're working in a very lonely situation to make Christ known among people who are very hostile to the gospel itself. So encourage them. Brothers and sisters, the closer we get to being a mission-minded church, the closer we get to the heart of God himself. Because God is a missions-minded God who cares about the world. So may God be pleased to build us into that launching plan that can send out those missionaries and hold the ropes for them. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to be a part of what you're doing in all the earth. We pray for the salvation of sinners here, that you will save sinners and draw them to yourself. We pray for us as God's people, that we will be fishers of men and that we will be a missions-minded people. Make us into such for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.